Great. So there's a new restaurant chain that has come out of Australia called Karen's Diner. This is like a really fun family place. This is where you want to have all your family birthdays, especially for your grandparents. Tagline is great burgers and very rude service. Their whole brand, their whole reputation is that they are rude to their customers, outrageously rude on purpose. What happened is a group of 20 uh, uh, entrepreneur type people got together and noticed customers treating help staff in retail places and in cafes and hospitality really badly. They thought, let's literally turn the dining tables on those people. And they've opened up this chain of restaurants. It's now in the States and once just opened in Mount Eden in Auckland. The Stuff Review, Stuff sent a reporter there, and this is how they wrote the review after visiting Karen's Diner. It's nerve-wracking. You have to fend for yourself. You can't rely on the service of the waitstaff or the food that comes out of the kitchen. Then they write, would I go again? As much as it made us laugh, it was a bit too anxiety-inducing for me. As much as it was interactive and fun, I can't imagine being, at a regu- being a regular at a restaurant that treats you so terribly. Now, Karen's. If you're unfamiliar with the phrase Karen's, Karen is a slang term. Uh, mostly, it started off for mostly white women, perceived as entitled and demanding beyond the scope of what is normal. The phase has taken off in social media and in memes and now this theme restaurant. Well, there's actually, in the States, they figure out how to create PhDs for everything. There's this Kansas State University professor named Heather Suzanne Woods, and she researches memes and social media uh, phenomenon. Oh, there we go. And, and she says this, a Karen's defining characteristic is a sense of entitlement, a willingness and desire to complain, and a self-centered approach to interacting with others. According to Woods, she goes on, a Karen demands the world exists according to her standards with little regard for others. She is willing to risk or demean others whom they deem lesser than people who don't give her what she wants and feels, uh, and feels that she deserves. All right. So who thinks here that rude behavior in our society is on the rise? Raise two fingers. No, I'm kidding. Raise, <laughs> raise your hand. But think about it. Is it really? Really? I mean, is that really true? Or is it just that most of us are getting older and like all those young people are so rude these days? Well, there's actually a woman named the name of Christine Porath. She is a professional rudeness researcher. It's an actual job. Don't be rude and make fun of that. It's a rudeness researcher. And she has been researching rudeness for over 20 years now. And the question that she asked in her research is, have you been treated rudely at work in the last month? One of the key questions of her research. And this is what she found. In 2006, 49% of respondents said, absolutely, people have been rude to me. In 2011, it was 55%. In 2016, it was 62%. In 2020, she asked people, and people said, shut up, who's asking? No, I'm kidding. No. In 2022, 76% said, yes, I've been treated rudely. As she puts it, we are in an epidemic of rudeness. Now listen to this. Research shows rudeness is like a common cold. It's contagious. It spreads quickly. Anyone can be a carrier, and getting infected doesn't take much. Merely witnessing rudeness, such as reading a nasty comment on social media or listening to an argument of interview, reduces your cognitive function. 
In non-academic language, it makes you stupider. And then she goes on. It interferes with your memory and decreases your performance. Welcome to one another. We're continuing this series on how do we treat people, our relationship series in February. And to help us dive deeper, you got some uh, notes in your, new, in your newsletter that you can fill in the blank if you like. There's some reflection questions on the other side of that for you to kind of apply it to your life a little bit more. We also have a few other resources. We have an infographic, a hundred verses of one another verses throughout the Bible. We have an infographic out on the table in the foyer if you happen to grab that. I really encourage you just over the next couple weeks, read through all those verses. Kind of wash yourself with what the Bible says about how we treat one another. We also have a series called um, Healing Relationships that we're doing through Right Now Media. Uh, if you haven't signed up for Right Now Media, please email reception. We'll send you a link for that. We have uh, questions out in the foyer for you, a little booklet you can use. It's a four-part series on what's it mean to heal relationships. What's it mean to be a peacemaker? What's it mean to reconnect with people? What's it mean to relate to people in such a way that not only are the relationships healed between you and family and friends, but other people Get healed because your relationship is so good with one another. So if you like, use the message notes that provided for you if they're helpful. And have your phone ready because I want you to take a pic of something a little bit later on. So today's message, really simple. It's a one-word deal. One-word deal. We're going to explain one word. We're going to learn how to do one word. We're going to look at how this one word changes Everything, everything changes the way you think about people, changes the way you see people, uh, changes the way you see people who look like you, changes the way you see people who don't look like you, uh, changes the way uh, you look at people who think like you and people who don't think like you, uh, people who vote like you and people who don't vote like you. It's going to change the way you treat your friends and your family and your coworkers, people you meet on the street. And this one little word is the anecdote to Karenisms. All over this world, this rudeness and, and polarization that we see all around our society today, and the word is honor. It's honor. A lot of one another verses about honor in the Bible, like Romans 12, 10. Honor one another above yourselves. Uh, honor, that one word, it means to value or to recognize value in somebody else. It's such an important Bible that in noun form or in verb form, it is brought up 62 different times in the New Testament, this word to honor others. But even with so many biblical commands, 62 of them in the New Testament, for us to honor one another, it's a forgotten instruction today. Uh, it's a biblical concept that was so important. Just to get an idea of how important it was. Back in the ancient Roman culture, when the New Testament was written to people back then, and specifically Roman men, honor was the most valuable possession you could own. It was your place in society. It was a combination of your money, your, your family line, and your position in society. That was your definition of honor. But what it did, the dark side of that, is that it created a caste system, an us and them kind of system. In Roman society, every time you approach people, you brought out your little mental scorecard, and you had this question in mind, and are they above me or are they below me? Are you above me or below me? Are you above me or are you below me on the honor scale people like to walk around and people were always mentally kind of scoring every single person they met as they were approaching and say okay what's on their list okay they're a landowner check that's a good thing they're a male that's a big check in the roman society uh, they were a citizen check uh, they could network me and do me favors check check okay i must show them honor 
But then here comes another person. Oh, let's see. Oh, here's a female. They're not even on my scorecard. Um, They're poor. Oh, yeah, that's not on my scorecard either. Uh, They have a disgusting job. No check. I don't agree with them politically. No check. Okay, I don't have to honor them, but they better honor me. See, honored only went one direction, up. It's only way it went. You honored those you deemed were above you. You never had to honor those you deemed were below you. They had to honor you instead. That's how life worked. And then the Bible comes around. Jesus comes around. The disciples write what Jesus talks about. The disciples passed on what Jesus taught. And the Bible would say things like, honor widows. Widows. They're not well-networked. They don't have a lot of money. They can't do any favors, but you're supposed to honor them? Honor the aged, really? The elderly? Really? What can they do for me? Honor your wife? Seriously? Come on. I married her for the two cows, and, you know, she's supposed to honor me. See, women were way down on the honor scale back then compared to men. Honor the poor and the disabled? Come on. Jesus says, actually, honor them more than anybody else. Always make room for them to be a guest of honor at every meal, at every banquet. And then the disciples, they come along, they start passing on the message of Jesus, and they continue to pass the same message on. Peter basically says, look, you know what? Just honor everyone. Just honor everyone. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What? You know who the emperor was when Peter wrote this? Had this written? It was Nero. Nero, the guy who burned Christians at the stake, who burned Christians at the stake along the roads as a streetlight to Rome. Honor him. There's so much us and them going on today. So much polarization going on today. Politically, theologically, sexually, economically, racially. Now, I don't agree with everybody else either. But this passage tells me I do not have permission at all to dishonor those that are different, to write them off, to call them names, to ignore them, to not invite them, to leave them out. Such an important concept for us in today's world, let alone ancient Rome. Because even within the Christian scene, sermons and podcasts and books and leaders and speakers and teachers, there seems to be quite a large group in the Christian world that says, look, if I'm standing up for biblical truth, no matter what I say, no matter how I say it, no matter how many adjectives I use in saying it, I'm excused. I can dishonor certain types of ideologies because it's not biblical. Plus, it sells a lot of merch. It grows my organization pretty quickly. So I got a free pass from God to slander. Slander my opponents. Slander those I disagree with. So it's okay to call the ex a you-know-what. It's okay to treat you know, one of them you know, the way they are in that way. Attack that lifestyle because that's an abomination to God. But dehumanizing people, that kind of dishonoring of people, that kind of disrespecting of all people, no matter how different they are, is unbiblical. It is non-Christ-like. It breaks God's heart. Because as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, we are to create a culture of honor towards everyone. The command in Scripture is probably the most forgotten command 
and the most disobeyed command that you read in the Bible these days in our social media-driven culture, including our own Christian culture. We are to create a culture of honor in our churches, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our school classrooms, in our families. Why? It's so different. Why? Why? See, as always, as there are to all of God's commands, there's lots of practical benefits to doing this. For example, um, when it comes to parenting and raising kids, honor is always superior to obedience. If your goal in raising your kids is to simply make them obey, you're parenting at the lowest common denominator because it's actually teaching them to figure out how much they can get away with without getting into trouble. Life becomes all about finding loopholes, right? You said to be home by 9. You didn't say 9 p.m., right? <laughs> See, a culture of honor changes all that. I think about when I was a kid being raised, obedience was not at the heart of my relationships with my mom and dad. Um, I wasn't motivated to obey their rules. I hated their rules, actually. Um, I was motivated, though, by an honoring of them. Um, be home at 10 p.m. as a curfew became, we trust you, Brian, so just when you come home, wake us up and let us know you're at home so we don't have to worry. Now, my parents were brilliant because what that did is it made me start to set my own decent curfew hours so I didn't have to wake them up in the early a.m. of the night, in the middle of the night, out of a love and out of respect for them, out of honor. See, the honor culture in our family ensured obedience and good character way more than rules did. Here's another way. Culture of honor benefits us, Jesus followers. We are called to be the light of the world, right? Point people to Jesus, right? Well, we can only be the light of the world if we are different from the rest of the world. If we're not, if we're lighter, than the rest of the world. And the world is not thirsting for a religious version of a disrespectful culture. They don't want to see religious outrage, same anger, but put God in there. Instead, they want to see a different kind of neighbor. One that embodies what they're not getting anywhere else on this planet. Respect, appreciation, honor, so having a culture of honor is actually going to make our faith and make our discussions about Jesus way more influential. So how do we do this? How do we create this culture of honor? I just want to highlight three ways that I think Scripture had those 62 verses, three kind of basic broad brush ways of how we can create a culture of honor. And the first one is this. Simply see the best in others. Just see the best in others. Um, it's got to start from the heart before you can say anything out loud to anybody else. You can't help others feel like a somebody if secretly, I know they are a nobody. It doesn't work. So what you have to do is you have to decide, I'm going to look for something good to say about everyone, including yourself. It's the internal narrative. Something good to say about everybody, about yourself, about your kids, to your spouse, to your neighbor, to local politicians, to the barista making your coffee while you wait in line. Let me show you what I mean. Take your phones out now. I want you to take a photo. Gary Smalley, a counselor, an author, he recommends actually take some time to write down for yourself a list of what you honor the most 
about the important people in your life, okay? Your husband, your wife, your children, your friends, your coworkers. So here's a list of character traits, for instance, right? Here's a list of character traits. These are the lists I wrote about Rachel. These are the lists that I wrote down with, okay? What do I honor most about Rachel? What do I appreciate most about Rachel? What do I love the most about Rachel? It's just a partial list because there'd be lots of PowerPoint slides, honey. There'd be lots. <laughs> um, but things like loving and intelligent and loyal, incredibly joyful and faithful. She's strong. She's decisive. She's attractive. She's resourceful. I mean, Barry, being married to my wife is like being married to the most interesting news broadcaster and movie critic you could ever know. I love it. She sees stuff. I'm like, far out. That's true, man. And, and she's insightful. She's supportive. She's organized. She's resourceful. She's joyful. Take a picture of this because this will just start you with some words thinking about how you want to apply it yourself. All right. They may inspire you to notice things in your spouse in your kids, in your neighbors, in your coworkers, in the members of your life group. In fact, what a great exercise if you're in a life group for you to go around and call the best out of others in your life group. Can you imagine what kind of friendships could be born out of that kind of environment? Why? Because listing things like this reminds you of who the other person actually is. It's a gratitude list. It helps you honor people. It's called confirmation bias. You actually tend to see what you're looking for. Want to see problems? Want to see conflict? Want to see disagreement? You'll see it. Want to see synergy? Want to see love? Want to see kindness? You'll see it. Genesis 9, 6 says this. God made human beings in his own image. We're all image bearers. This one verse stands at the heart of every single social issue that Christians have ever taken on, from hospitals to feeding the poor to orphanages to getting rid of slavery to immigration to racial reconciliation to social justice to the sanctity of human life. This verse right here means every single person on the planet deserves our honor, and they don't have to be like you. They don't even have to like you. They don't have to look like you. They don't have to think like you because that other person has still been made in the image of God. Like the Apostle Paul writes, we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. A human point of view means I've stopped scoring people based on my scorecards. Because most humans just look at others and they see someone approaching and they go, okay, how do you fit on my scorecard? Where's your political leaning? What's your IQ? What's your looks? Do I like that look? Are you, how's your skills? How's your job? What's your net value? What's your charisma? How can you network me better? How's your, what's your race? What's your attractiveness level? What's your sexual history? And we start judging, 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 and we don't even know we're doing it. Paul says, I don't do that anymore because Jesus never did that. Think about how Jesus interacted with people. Like in John chapter 1, think about how he interacted with Simon, a fisherman, a rough-as-guts fisherman, all around the edges, impetuous, unreliable. The only consistent thing Peter ever did was over-promise and under-provide. That's all he ever did. And then Jesus goes and calls Simon. He says, Simon, I'm going to call you the rock. Your new name is Mr. Stability, because that's basically what Peter, Petrus, means. Peter had done zero to deserve that. When others saw a worm, Jesus sees a butterfly. 
He sees what you are becoming and will become. See, when you honor people, what you're doing is you're giving them a reputation to live up to. Right? Consider how Jesus responded to Levi. Okay, Levi. We all know Levi, the disciple. He's the one who invented pants. And he's... So, sorry. Matthew Levi. I was reading my sermon like, I need a joke because it's getting kind of boring at this point. That's the best I could come up with. Um, Matthew Levi was a tax collector, right? And that meant really low scores on everybody's scorecard. He was a Roman collaborator. He was a traitor. It was okay to dishonor him every opportunity you had. That's why tax collectors, their only friends, were all the other people on the dishonor list, the prostitutes and the drunkards and that kind of crowd. But Jesus sees Levi, Matthew, and he says, follow me, follow me. When Jesus called Simon Peter, when Jesus called Levi, when he called all the disciples, the thing about it is not a single one of them deserved it. Not a single one of them had repented yet. Not a single one of them had even realized he's the Messiah. They haven't shown any evidence at all of their potential. But Jesus sees the butterfly. See, Jesus sees what we'll become, and he honors that. Think about how Jesus uh, responded and worked with the Samaritan woman. Most people on the social scorecard, uh, this lady was a mess. She was an absolute mess. She's a woman. That's already a negative tick. She's a Samaritan, two negative ticks, racial minority and a religious minority. And she's divorced and divorced and divorced and divorced and divorced. Five times divorced. In a culture where one-time divorce means you are ostracized and dishonored. And she's now living with the guy that she's not married to. Not a single reason to honor her. Not a single reason at all. Yet Jesus does. And as a result, she becomes our first Christian missionary. She becomes our first street preacher because he honored her. You know why I think we don't do this in the Christian world as well as we could? Because we might send the wrong message. We don't want to be friends with those type of people. What if my honoring God's image in those people, what if it looks like I'm endorsing their sin? What if it makes it look like I'm okay with how they live? Especially to my other religious friends that are going to say, what are you doing? What do people think I'm one of those cheap grace guys? You know, like way too soft in the middle. You got to get hardened up a little bit in the name of Jesus. Um, that I'm compromising, right, to, the, to, to biblical truth. I got to look righteous. I got to look righteous to keep certain people happy. I got to look righteous so that people don't see my unrighteousness. I'm going to hide that. Remember what people said about Jesus? The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How many want to be lumped with Jesus? How many want to be lumped with the Pharisees? That's the choice. What I want to ask you to do is look out and then call out the best in others just like Jesus did. Highlight the image of God in everyone, no matter what the other religious judgmental people are going to say about you. Because in the end, we're not answerable to them. We're answerable to somebody else. And also, today, please go home, look in the mirror, and do the same to yourself. See the best in yourself. You're feeling a little bit worthless these days. The truth is you've been made in the image of God. Own it and thank him for that. Look in the mirror and go, man, God, you did some good work here. (laughs) Because no one can add to that and no one can take away from that. 
It's God-given. Secondly, in creating a culture of honor, speak the best to others. Speak out the best of others. Everybody walks around with this invisible sign that says, value me. Value me. Your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, your coworkers, um, the person that checks out the food at Pack and Save, they all have this invisible sign that says, value me. Proverbs 22.1, being held in high esteem is better than gold and silver. Honor is something that everyone longs for. We all long to be affirmed as valuable. But to be clear, honoring someone sees the value. It doesn't set the value. The value's already there. We don't make people valuable. God did that. What we do is we thank God for them and for that. We recognize it and we honor them by recognizing it in them and speaking it out. Because sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. Now, remember that mental list I put up earlier? First thing you want to do is notice things about each other. Name them. Literally name them. Make a list. Name them. And then when you have that mental list, you choose to speak them out. Yeah, nah, we don't do that in New Zealand, right? We don't do that. If I like somebody, we make fun of them. That's how we make friends. The reason, the reason you know I love you is because I treat you like rubbish. That's the New Zealand way, right? Yeah, nah, nah, nah. No, no, no. We were at um, our daughter's engagement party, and there was like a, a last kind of minute surprise open mic session for people to get up and speak to, to Kim and Liam. So their friends got up, and everybody did the whole um, Kiwi thing. First off, oh, I don't like talking in front of people. And then they go, but I don't like talking on a mic. And then they got warmed up, and all they did was make fun of Kim and Liam and highlight all the problems that they see and weaknesses and stuff. And then at the end, they said, Brian, you get up. You're a professional. You get up. You're supposed to do this. So I got up. And at the end, I just got up and just said, look, Kim, this is what I've seen. You're amazing in these areas. Liam, I have just been draw job. You are amazing in these areas. And everybody was like, aw, 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 aw. And then I go, look, I'm a pastor. You can't stop me. I want to do a little karakia. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mostly a non-Christian audience. So we pray, and I thank God for them. And at the end, the, uh, the future father-in-law and all that kind of stuff comes up to me and goes, oh, you call me a few names. You just made us all look like chumps, man. We're all making fun of them. You get up and say all this nice kind of stuff. And then as he walked away, he goes, I should have done that. It's in us. It's in us, all of us. Even sometimes when the person you're highlighting doesn't always live up to what's best in them, like none of us do, none of us do that, you say it. And you honor people up into that quality in them. Because that's what Jesus did all the time. All the time he did that. John 15, uh, right before the, he was betrayed by his disciples, he says, I no longer call you servants. And I think he's looking right at the person who's about to betray him. But friends, but friends. One chapter later, he goes, oh, and by the way, I know you're all going to scatter. I know you're all going to wimp out and leave me completely alone. I know you're all going to abandon me. He already knew that. And in the midst of even knowing all that, he still looks at them and says, I call you friends, not submissive, not students, friends, friends. You see, the test of honor is when there are failures, when there are betrayals, when there are mistakes done, and you can still honor them. What tends to happen is we trap people in their history with us. Honor releases them from their history. Honor enables you to see them according to how Jesus sees them. 
not according to how they felt or how they made you upset in the past. See, Jesus doesn't trap people in their history. He invites them into their destiny. And that's what we do for each other when we honor one another. It's what good leaders do. It's what good parents do. Uh, The Apostle Paul did this for the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians. He says, I have the highest confidence in you, and I take great pride in you. You have greatly encouraged me and made me happy despite all our troubles. See, the Corinthians, that was the biggest pain in the backside congregation that Paul ever had. They were drunker. They would get drunk on communion wine. Is it communion Sunday? Yeah! And, and they were, did all kinds of sketchy stuff. They were a source of constant chaos in his life. And he speaks these words to them. And he's consistent through all of his epistles. See, people don't have to be perfect for you to honor them with their words. There's always something worthy to affirm in them. It doesn't mean be silent when they mess up. And it doesn't mean don't correct your kids. And it doesn't mean when you see a friend lost in sin, you just say, oh, well, live and let you know, live and let live, and that's their choice. That's not what it means. Of course not. If your friends are caught in addiction, the most loving thing you can do is intervene. If your child is throwing a tantrum and demanding you to buy a toy right in front of the checkout person, the most loving thing you can do is not buy the toy. See, correction works best when there's this relationship and foundation of honor. It's already established because now they trust you. Don't wait to speak the best about one another at one another's funeral. Eulogize now. And let's live that way. The last thing is this. We see the best, we speak the best. But internally, you assume the best of others. What's your go-to response? When you see someone different from you, what's your go-to response? It's election year. Are you ready? Oh, man, really? They put a labor sticker on the bumper and they're driving into church? Seriously, a two-tick two for blue sticker on the back of their car in, in our church? Where do, you, where do you assume? Oh, no, not another one of those electric car-driving hippies pulling into the church parking lot, probably charging on a homemade generator that runs on recycled fish and chip oil, and all they're going to do is talk about their compost pile all afternoon after church. Please, oh, please, he's wearing one of those Tayreo month shirts, speaking language shirts. What's your go-to? What's your go-to assumptions? Do you assume the worst virtues about others? Oh, it's one of them woke, hemp-wearing, hippie, electric car driving. Or do you assume they genuinely care about the environment and the stewarding of our earth? Uh, is one of those right-leaning, rich, and tight. Or is it someone, do you assume that is incredibly hardworking, incredibly generous to everyone that crosses their path? Tall poppies grow on both sides of the fence. How difficult would it be to try assuming that the person who has a passion for something that is different from yours, that you can't relate to, has come to that position out of a sincere conviction and sense of goodwill and common good for everybody. So you don't have to agree with them, but you need to assume the best about their motives. But assuming the best has a lot of other practical effects on relationships as well. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about this. Love does not dishonor others. If you're a loving follower of Jesus, uh, don't dishonor people ever. Instead, love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful. Love endures through every circumstances. What does that mean, always hopeful? How does that work? Well, it's like this. In every relationship, there's a gap between expectation 
and a behavior every, every time. You said you would do these chores, and you didn't do them. You said that we would do this on the weekend, and we didn't do it. Um, it can be deep reasons. It can be shallow issues. But at some point, that gap shows up between expectation and between behavior. And you have a choice to make. Every time that happens, you fill that gap with an assumption. And do you assume the worst about their reason for that gap? Or do you assume the best with that fat gap? Now, there's an assumption that in life, and you hear married talks and all that kind of stuff, that the happy marriages, the happy families, they have no gap ever. There's no gap ever. They're always right there, no gap. Reality always meets expectation. But the truth is there's not a single relationship that doesn't have a gap. And what you find is that the happiest of marriages, the happiest of families, the happiest of, of co-workers or working relationships, the happiest of friendship groups, the happiest of life groups, they fill that gap by assuming the best. It goes for marriages, kids, co-workers, everything. It's honoring, and it creates a peaceful relationship, a happy relationship, a kind relationship, a loving relationship. So why do this? Why do we honor? There are some cultures where honor comes so naturally. This ain't it. New Zealand is not one of those cultures. This is where we have to be intentional about this. We need to be habit-forming about this. It's part of living into a kingdom-shaped culture. So why do I honor? What's my motivation? We'll wrap up with this. Like everything that is Jesus-reflecting, Telling us as a church, start honoring each other will never work. Setting rules, you will honor each other three times a day at 12, at 2, it will never work, ever work. Because it comes from the inside. Just like everything with Jesus, it comes from the inside. Look at how Paul figured out how to change. Paul, the person who used to persecute Christians and, and judge Christians and throw them under the peripheral bus. Look at his mentality. First Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me, me, trustworthy, in putting me into ministry, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and an arrogant man. But I was treated with mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Paul was so overwhelmed by the fact that somebody who was completely undeserving got a call from God. God topped him, tapped him on the shoulder in spite of Paul's own social scorecard. See, Paul's scorecard included violent, blasphemer, persecutor, arrogant, anti-Christian. And God's like, yeah, you know what? Just throw those cards away. Here's a new set of cards for you. It's one card. I'm going to call you ambassador to the kings. And the same happens for all of us, all of us. He goes on. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This is why Paul never judged anybody else again, because he was the worst. He was the worst. And he goes on, he says this, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He's saying, look, do you not understand how much God has honored you and you and you and you? There is none higher in the entire universe of whom honor should go, and yet he decided to dishonor himself born in a manger, killed on a cross to honor you with his grace and his new life. 
no matter what bad stuff is on your scorecards. He wrote a new card for every single one of you. It says chosen, graced, child of God, called of God, destined from God, with my purpose laid on your heart. Who cares what other people write on their social cards about you? Jesus says, this is how I chose to honor you. God says, I have sent my son, Jesus, to love you, to show you me, to point to me, then die on the cross for you so you can live with me and for me for all of eternity. And once you let that sink in, once you let that go, whoa, it overwhelm you, once you're grateful for that, and that's why I want you to go look in the mirror today, that kind of grace just overflows from you to everybody else. We need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. Then you'll want to talk the gospel to others. This is why dishonoring people, including opponents, so anti-Jesus. Because it's grace. Honor is all about grace. You're just treating people with grace. And when you dishonor people, you're taking the essential core message of Christianity, the gospel of grace, and you're throwing it out. We don't do that. And then he finishes, now the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.